Hey everybody, welcome. Sorry for, uh, well, I was about to say sorry for a few delays getting started tonight, but that is nothing compared to the delays and problems we've had getting this class scheduled in the first place, so I apologize for that uh, even more. Thanks for uh, being able to join me on comparatively short notice, uh, and uh, it's sort of especially... um, sort of especially disappointing to me that this was the class that uh, kept getting delayed because I've been really looking forward to this class, uh, talking about Faramir. Um, So uh, let's not delay any further and get straight to Faramir. Um, Now, I wanted to, having said that, do a couple brief things first. First of all, I do want to finish up the passages that we didn't get to last time uh, at the end of looking at uh, Frodo and Gollum and looking at Frodo's choices there in the first few chapters. However, um, one brief thing I wanted to do actually just to pick up on the where we ended last time, which was looking at Gollum and Smeagol. And one of the things that uh, I think is really striking when you look really carefully at that passage, you can see the element that Tolkien has really added uh, since The Hobbit, uh, which is giving Gollum a genuinely divided personality. We can see the remnants uh, of thinking of the, the, you know, the phrase that he uses, there, the remnants of old truth and sincerity. Um, there is a good Gollum that is still there, and this was introduced way back in Chapter 2, back in the Shadows of the Past by Gandalf, when Gandalf says that you know, there is not no hope uh, that, Gan- that uh, Gollum can be cured. And that's not a really... Um, Wonderful commendation, of course, on Gandalf's part, uh, but uh, but it is why he exp- you know he, he explains one of the reasons why he did not let the elves execute Gollum because he believes there is a chance, even if it's small, that Gollum could be uh, that Gollum could be redeemed. That was less obvious uh, in. Gollum as we saw him in The Hobbit. I should specify, of course, Gollum as we saw in The Revised Hobbit. Gollum as we met him, or as some few people met him, back in 1937 in the first edition Hobbit, uh, before Tolkien changed Gollum around uh, and revised that chapter significantly in order to make it to make it compatible with uh, the status of the ring as the Ring of Power. The original Gollum, of course, was... Uh, yes, you know, uh, uh, you know, he ate hobbits, uh, but, and, and wanted to eat Bilbo. But apart from that, was really a splendid guy, uh, generally, and, uh, and, you know, um, did fine. That was less so. He became more miserable, but also more wicked. And there were very few glimpses, I think, there are very few glimpses in the published Hobbit that most of us know, um, that really suggest that Gollum is Redeemable that there's good lurking still in Gollum. He's miserable, um, uh, but um, <laughs> yes, Kay says his sweetheart with a touch of cannibalism. Exactly, yes. Um, uh, but um, but anyway, I, I do think that uh, we can see uh, Tolkien has sort of shifted that again as we come into the Lord of the Rings, um, and that now we have uh, taken Gollum one, Gollum's character one step further, um, and. With the emphasis, which is, is is clearly building up to the parallel that we can see, the like the likeness, um, the connection that Frodo feels for Gollum. I mean, there there is a way in which you know those moments where Sam is looking and he sees. I didn't uh, do this passage though. I was I, I was. It was one of the ones I was. Um, 
it's the last scene that I cut from our class last time. Uh, apparently, not I didn't cut enough. But anyway, um, what the last one that I cut was that scene when Sam kind of sees them with other eyes, and he sees Frodo standing there like a stern lord, lord and at his feet a groveling dog. Um, you know, that sort of glimpse of Frodo and and Gollum as they are on the other side. But yet, at the same time, though there's this great distance between them and their stature, there's also a likeness between them, and they can sort of see into each other in ways that other people can't. You know, there's a way, of course, in which we're getting a before and after picture um, with Frodo and Gollum, and that seems to be something that Tolkien's really emphasizing in The Lord of the Rings, which, again, certainly... um, certainly wasn't really there uh, in The Hobbit. But um, this is all sort of backwards commentary on the the slinker and stinker conversation that we were looking at at the end of class last time, because I wanted to look, uh, just glance on the subject of Gollum at Faramir's diagnosis, because I think this is an important thing to keep in mind, and we can sort of overlook it. Frodo, I think you do very unwisely in this, said Faramir, that is, following Gollum to Kirathungal. I do not think you should go with this creature. It is wicked. No, not altogether wicked, said Frodo. Not wholly, perhaps, said Faramir, but malice eats it like a canker, and the evil is growing. He will lead you to no good. And I think that this is, um, uh, this is something that is really important to keep in mind. We... Throughout the, and this, of course, comes at the very end of the Faramir section here uh, in the Two Towers, and we have really no reason. Um, we have really no reason to suspect that Faramir is incorrect in his diagnosis. His insight has been dependable <laughs> thus far, um, so I am inclined to take Faramir's assessment uh, as something pretty close to fact here. Um, about Gollum and the state of Gollum's heart. Faramir concedes, yes, I can see that Gollum isn't wholly wicked. He is not 100% wicked. Um, Frodo wants to emphasize that. It is wicked, he says. And Frodo's like, no, no, no. And Faramir says, okay, whatever. But what he's, what Faramir emphasizes, which is the thing I think that we can um, so often forget, Faramir says, you know, He's not entirely wicked, but that's the direction the arrow is pointing right now, my friend, and don't kid yourself, right? Um, Gollum is not, according to Faramir, in the process of recovery. And this, I think, is something that uh, is a mistake that we can sort of make. If we can kind of come beside Frodo here and say, okay, no, I can still see some Gollum. You know, if, if the Smeagol voice in that debate, you know, really kind of tugs at you and, um, and you know, it's like, oh, see, they're still good in Gollum. We can, um, you know, it'll, it'll be okay. You know, maybe he's, he's, he is, uh, we know he's going to fall, uh, he's going to fall off the cliff. I meant that metaphorically, not literally, but anyway, we know he's going to, you know, he, he, he's going to take a wrong turn, uh, before, before too long, before the end of this book. But, um, at the very least, there is this, uh, temptation to say, well, okay, no, he, he is getting better, right? He's taken the, the oath to Frodo and he's trying to keep it and he's getting better and, you know, it's, it's not going to work, but, but he's, Faramir says no. It, ma- malice is eating it like a canker and the evil is growing. Um, there is good in Gollum. He is not wholly wicked. 
but he's not getting better. He's getting worse. And what is getting worse is that malice, the malice that eats it like a canker. Um, the malice, which that's the golem voice. That's the that's the 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 green uh, the green glint in his eyes. That's the that's the stinker. Um, and stinker is uh, is um, sting, uh, stinker is getting stronger, not weaker. Um, this is something that they do differently, of course, in the film, and it's really one of the most dramatic differences, um, so I think the most dramatic difference in the depiction of Gollum. Um, the way that they have Gollum actually getting better, and then they have his um, return back into his evil ways, following the, uh, for him in the film's very unfortunate encounter uh, with, uh, uh, with the Rangers of Athelion, that becomes, uh, you know, this sort of moment of like it's tragedy in the film right he you know they're misunderstanding him you know they're not evilly intentioned but they do wrong and and you know it's and it's it sort of falls apart it feels like a tragedy um in the film very interesting the way that they the way that they did that i think um and I think it works really well in the film. I, I quite like the Gollum story as it's depicted in the film. I think it's one of the most, um, uh, I think it's one of the most interestingly constructed character arcs in the whole Lord of the Rings film trilogy. But it's not the same as in the book, and I just think it's important for us to notice this. We will get to the opportunity, the potential opportunity for redemption, which does happen in the book, um, but it's not. That's not the direction that he's that he's that he's moving in. He's not getting better and better. He is getting worse and worse because of that malice. He um, he hates Frodo. You know, yes, we hate every Baggins, right? That that malice which sp- speaks out. And as Sam notice, notices, it's not the good Gollum. It's not the Smeagol that has the last the, the final word, right? Um, it's it's the bad Gollum. Um, it's this it's this malicious Gollum that has the final word in that debate. Um, yeah, um, sorry, I'm just uh, scanning through comments now, um, let's see. Um, Diego points out that, uh, you know, he says, it's interesting, I haven't thought about it in these terms, Diego. Diego says, we should remember that oaths in Tolkien are an entity in and of themselves. Gollum might keep the oath gritting his teeth and wanting to kill the hobbits. The fact that he doesn't go through with his oath, it's the fact that he doesn't go through with it is his oath, not the goodness uh, underneath. There is power in that, Diego, and I agree with you. I'm not sure I'd go quite so far as to say that the oaths are an entity in themselves. They're certainly a major factor in themselves, and they do have power. Um, the oath binds Gollum. Um, he cannot... Um, uh, he... Yeah, he, he, he is bound. He is constrained. Um, and I do think, Diego, that that's a really important thing uh, for us to remember. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Kay was pointing out as a side note that she noted the pale light descriptive phrase uh, describing Boromir's funeral boat in Faramir's eerie dream or vision. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, it's 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 certainly not a universally evil description. It comes up a lot uh, in different ways. It's why I don't know how, because of the complexity of that, you know, the different, uh, the kind of elasticity of that phrase uh, in Tolkien's prose, I'm never quite sure how to peg it uh, when uh, it's used to describe Gollum's eyes. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Diego, I agree. It's, it, it's not... Um, it's not just his word, um, you know, like his promise, um, which, with which the, the, you know, there seems to be some scorn towards that promise that Gollum, the stinker Gollum, uh, speaks, you know, calls it a silly promise, but at the same time, uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't just suggest breaking it, um, rather suggests ways around it, um, Christina asks, could it be that Gollum is still redeemable at this point because he has not yet made the definitive choice to betray Frodo? Um, perhaps it's the decisive choice that makes the difference. Christina, I agree that sort of the point of no return comes later. Um, but I do... Th and and I, so I agree, he is still... The potential is still there. Um, he still has the ability to turn back and choose. But in the end, he's there's going to come a point past which he does not seem to have that choice, um, uh, and that that brings me to um, to Trisha's point um, or her question. Uh, Tolkien writes in letters in later years about Gollum's potential redemption. Do you think that Tolkien backed off on Gollum's full evilness after the fact? Um, I don't think so, Trish. I don't see that as a backing off necessarily. One of the things, though, notice how uh, casually, Trish, you are luring me into getting off topic and starting to talk about the return of the king when we are so not there. But um, uh, nevertheless, I'll do it anyway because I'm a sucker. But uh, I'm. Tolkien emphasizes with both Frodo and Gollum that there are two different things at work. There's their own wills, and there is their strength. Um, Frodo's will holds out as long as he possibly can, but there is a point after which he can't anymore. Frodo eventually fails, um, and this is something that bothered a lot of people when the book first came out and Tolkien wrote about this. Gollum ultimately, you know, he reaches the point where he can't, I think, choose. By the time we get towards the cracks of doom, Gollum can't choose at that point. There's Gollum is, in a sense, Gollum is unredeemable at that point. But it's because he's already passed that point. He's already chosen. And he is now reaping the fruits of the choice that he already made. Um, and you know, it's like when you are already careening down the slope, um, it's too late to stop. Stopping was a while back. And Tolkien does seem to to sort of suggest that, that, you know, that, that there are those two things involved. You do, in order for them to turn back, you've got to have the wheel, but you've, it's not, it's not, it's not just as easy as choosing, right? Um, and, uh, at that point, Gollum is completely overwhelmed. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, um, 
Anyhow, so I, 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 but I'm not going to get into that too much further. Let's wait until we get there. Um, at the very least, we need to wait until we get to Gollum's uh, choice. We'll get to that next week, of course, um, where I think is really the final pivotal moment uh, for Gollum. Um, but anyway, I, just, I did want to I did want to skip over this passage entirely because I, I'm I'm not going to be talking about Gollum much for the rest of this class. Uh, so I did want to uh, want to at least hit that. Um, but let's go back now to Frodo and Frodo's choosing, and I'm going to try to be. I will make an attempt to be a little bit more efficient here. Um, this is Frodo's sort of threat and prophecy uh, against Gollum. One of the passages which retroactively is just awesome. Uh, I mean, I think this is one. This is one of the passages uh, that is so cool on a second reading of the book. You know, you read it. Th- you know, when, when you're when you're reading the Lord of the Rings for the first time, you know, you might not really note or pay attention to this entire passage. When you read it a second time, uh, you know, that's when you're like, wow, that's really cool. Anyway, um, he's just said that, uh, you know, to beware to Smeagol that he's in danger. I did not mean the danger that we all share, said Frodo. I mean a danger to yourself alone. You swore a promise by what you call the precious. Remember that. It will hold you to it, but it will seek a way to twist it to your undoing, to your own undoing. Already you are being twisted. You revealed yourself to me just now, foolishly. Give it back to Smeagol, you said. Do not say that again. Do not let that that thought grow in you. You will never get it back. But the desire of it may betray you to a bitter end. You will never get it back. In the last need, Smeagol, I should put on the precious, and the precious mastered you long ago. If I, wearing it, were to command you, you would obey even if it were to leap from a precipice or to cast yourself into the fire. And such would be my command. So have a care, Smeagol. Um, yeah. You know, of the random examples, even if it were to leap from a precipice or to cast yourself into a fire, to choose two really random examples of, uh, of what I might possibly command you to do or what you might, uh, what might end up happening to you. Um, Notice that Frodo is here in touch with, although, you know, Faramir is is urging him later on, Frodo seems perfectly conscious of here, of the same thing that Faramir is talking about in different words. Faramir is more blunt, right? You know, malice eats it like a canker, he says. But here, Frodo is saying, don't let that thought grow in you. You will never get it back. The desire of it may betray you to a bitter end. He's, he recognizes... Faramir sees it a little bit more clearly. This is malice, right? It's not just desire. It is desire. Um, but there's malice there, too. It's not simply desire. Frodo is perhaps, I think Faramir implies, being slightly overkind in his assessment, though Frodo does, see, does perceive the same thing. Um, but I... Uh, Frodo here is this is a, a one really significant thing about this passage is the threat that he makes at the end if I wearing it were to command you wait a second remember the conversation he had with Goadriel in the Fellowship of the Ring where he says hey Goadriel I have a question um, I've, I've uh, worn the Ring of Power um, why are not all the other rings revealed to me right you know why can't I and you know, it's with the sort of implication of like you know I've heard that this ring gives you like Enormous godlike powers of command. 
why why does it just make me invisible? Why have I not uh, ever experienced these powers? And she says, you haven't tried, right? Don't try. Um, you know, in order to do that, you would have to train your will to the domination of others. Um, and she urges him that that's really not a good idea. Um, but the implication is that he could do that. Now, I'm not suggesting that I think that Frodo could, in fact, become, you know, the Dark Lord ruling the world uh, if he were to claim the ring for his own, or that he actually, um, you know, constitutes a threat to uh, Sauron if he were to, uh, you know, like, when he claims it at the end, like, that he could actually take Sauron down. I don't, I don't really think that that's, that that's true, but um, uh, he is... Uh, Tom, exactly, exactly as you're saying, the ring is twisting Frodo here. As I, I agree with you, Tom. That's exactly, I think, um, what we can see happening here. Um, he is, it's not exactly, you know, training his mind to the dominion of others, but it's the first step, right? He is contemplating putting on the ring and using it to command, to dominate others. Um, you know... That, like I would put on the ring and I would command you to throw yourself off a cliff. That's pretty hardcore right there. Um, you know, that's, uh, um, you know, hey, would Gollum deserve it? Yes, but he and G- Gandalf already had that discussion. Twice, in a sense, right? You remember from last time. Um, so, so uh, this is, I think, a big deal in kind of seeing where Frodo is and the kind of thoughts that are already sort of starting to leak uh, into Frodo's mind. There's some irony here. Um, you know, you are being twisted, he says to Gollum. Um, and as Tom points out, he's being twisted, too. Carissa asks, is he just posturing? You know, we could, we could, we could read that as not actually hardcore, but just posturing. Um, it's... I guess what I'm tempted to say about that, Carissa, is I'm not sure that there's a huge difference in this particular scenario. I mean, it's like he's doing it, right? Um, he's uh, uh, he's just stating, this is what I would do. The fact that, that that plan is there, the fact that that idea is there, is he really sincere? Does he mean it? Um, does he... Is, is he, what, I mean, is he not joking? Is this not very funny? Um, so I don't think we could say that he doesn't mean it in that sense. Um, is he simply trying to intimidate? Is he bluffing? Is he just trying to intimidate Gollum? This doesn't sound like a bluff to me. I, I don't think so. Um, Fro- we've never seen Frodo do that kind of thing. And I think especially that the dramatic irony involved, you know, when we've read the book before, and we know that, in fact, he is going to leap from a precipice and cast himself into the fire. Um, uh, the Gollum, that is, um, gives this an air of solemnity. There's, there's, there is an element of prophecy in this, um, even if it's not intended, you know, sort of conscious prophecy on Frodo's part. Um, so I do think that his twisting here, um, the twisting of Frodo, is something that we can that we can definitely see. Um, even his objections to Gollum's um, asking for the ring back. Um, what are his motivations? Frodo's motivations for getting so stern, you know, on that 
on that subject, you know? Um, I don't think it's simply benevolent. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's say, uh, yeah. Um, Sharon, very good point. Sharon says, I find it interesting that Frodo would put... Um, would cite at the last need, which is already a justification to use the ring for a powerful purpose. Yeah, exactly. We, there is an element of rationalization in, in there, isn't it? It's not that I'm planning to. It's not like I've actually worked it out and been like, okay, uh, I'm going to start in some small ways building my career of the domination of other wills, right? Uh, it's time for me to start uh, to start, you know, getting some real mileage out of this baby, right? You know, so I'm going to I'm first Gollum, then the world, right? It's not like that, right? He's not doing any kind of conscious planning like that. Um, at the last, you know, in the last need, if, if worse came to worse, this is what I do, right? Okay. Um, that's a slippery slope. Um, uh, Kay does point out, and it's a good point, Kay, that this is uh, um, uh, that that does echo Gandalf's criteria not to strike without need. Uh, you know, pity and mercy, not to strike without need. Thinking back to Gandalf's uh, quotation. Yeah, but Kay, what I would say there is that's exactly where the rationalization comes from, right? Uh, you know, he, maybe he still has Gandalf's words in his head. We saw them in his head before, right? We know they're in his head. Um, so maybe maybe he's actually, in fact, playing off that, and that's where he's getting his rationalization from. You know, I mean, that's, um, that, that's in, anyway, kind of what it sounds uh, to me. Um, yeah. Tom uh, has another good point. Says uh, Sam's reaction to Frodo's words is interesting: um, approval and surprise. Um, and I think both sides of that are interesting. Um, approval, because Sam clearly believes that Frodo is being a bit of a pushover when it comes to Gollum. Sam feels like Frodo believes there's you know, all this good or potential good in Gollum, and Sam believes that he sees right through him, right? Um, and that he understands the situation better than Frodo. Um, so he's surprised. <clears throat> and he approves of the sternness of his words, but I think the sort of potential greater significance of this, as far as Frodo's relationship with the ring, is uh, <clears throat> is going uh, is is going over uh, Sam's head here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um good. Good. Um okay, but look at me being efficient. Let's uh speaking of Gandalf. Go back and look at the passage that I said last time we'd eventually get to and here belatedly we're getting to it. Um Frodo is deliberating. He's trying to decide what to do. And there's a long pause, longer than... Uh, you know, that was actually something that I was noticing on this last, my last read-through here, um, was that I think I, I had never really paid attention to how long that delay is. When Gollum says, it's the only way, you know, I'll show you this other way, we should go down that way, and Frodo is trying to decide, should he follow Gollum, or should he go to the gate? And he ponders for a really long time. Um, and he's pondering a bunch of different things. I mean, we see from that last speech to Gollum, um, he's pondering, is Gollum just attempting to deceive me? Is this treachery on Gollum's part? Answer, 
yes, this is treachery on Gollum's part, um, or at least equivocation. Um, I suspect that Gollum is in part even lying to himself. We, we saw, by the way, in his conversation, she might help, right? And Smeagol reacts in horror. No, not that way, not that way. Um, and she, of course, is Shelob that he's referring to. So um, Stinker, Gollum, is already thinking, hey, um, maybe Shelob would help us, and we could do that, and Smeagol wants no part of it. Um, when, therefore, he suggests his other way, it is one way of reading that would be Stinker has won, right? Um, I'm not sure it's quite that simple. I think that he is kind of equivocating with himself. I think that he is... Um, excuse me, I think that he's uh, thinking about... Um, he's telling the truth and abiding by the letter of his oath. Um, he is coming up with a solution which sort of pleases both he, uh, both sides, both the Smeagol and the Gollum side. Um, Smeagol is preserving the life of Frodo and does in fact know a route in, right, and uh, and is telling the truth about knowing this way and saying that he made it through there before, right? <clears throat> All of these things are true, but he knows that Shelob is there, and he knows that they're going to have to go through Shelob's lair. It is also treason. It is also treachery. Um, but um, but I think he can, he, Gollum, can kind of rationalize that. Um, but anyway, during this debate, internal debate on Frodo's part, its name was Carathungal, a name of dreadful rumor. Aragorn could perhaps have told them that name and its significance. Gandalf would have warned them, but they were alone, and Aragorn was far away, and Gandalf stood amid the ruin of Isengard and strove with Saruman, delayed by treason. Yet even as he spoke his last words to Saruman, and the Palantir crashed in fire upon the steps of Orthanc, his thought was ever upon Frodo and Samwise. Over the long leagues, his mind sought for them in hope and pity. Um, it was in our discussion of pity that uh, uh, a couple of you, Brianna, I think uh, you were, if I remember correctly, um, quoting this passage uh, very, very correctly, um, as it's certainly very relevant. Um, one thing that I would just point out, I think it's really fascinating here, this particular move on the part of the narrator. The narrator doesn't persistently do this, um, but you know, the narrator is kind of in close, right? We're getting the conversation between Frodo and Sam and, and Gollum, and then Frodo is deliberating, and all of a sudden, the narrator jumps back and tells us the stuff that they don't know, tells us the stuff that Frodo and Sam don't know, right? Um, what Frodo is thinking about, you know... Uh, you know, dear audience, here's what Frodo doesn't know, right? Um, gives us a, a sort of an inside track in understanding the consequences of the decision that Frodo's about to make, which is an interesting, again, not a move that the narrator makes all the time. Um, and I think in, under the circumstances, a very interesting one, especially since um, you sort of think, what's at stake? When Frodo is making that decision, what's at stake? It's not just a question of, can I trust Gollum? He's also thinking in bigger picture terms. Remember the way that he was talking way back at the beginning of chapter one, right? You know, that he feels that it's his doom uh, to go to that shadow yonder, but will good or evil show it to me, right? He, he, he believes he has that faith that we were talking about, um, that he's going to be able to get there. And so what, one of the things, again, it's not just about Gollum personally, what he's debating is, okay, hang on a second. I have a plain way in front of me, right? On the one hand, there's the gate to Mordor, right there, 
right? I've been trying to get here. Here's the entrance into Mordor. I should go. It looks hopeless, but maybe <clears throat> I should have faith, right? Maybe I'm gonna somehow get that looks hopeless, but maybe I should, you know, I should have a have a crack at it because anyway, um, you know, maybe I'm it's my doom, right? So I'll get through. That's one option, right? It's not throwing his life away. It's not just suicide. Um, it could be, in the sense in which he was talking before, a step of faith. Or, but then wait a second. Maybe, uh, I, I was talking about, well, good or evil, show it to me. Well, here's, here's evil showing it to me. And he's just told me there's this other route. Um, should I go is that way? Gosh, that sounds intuitive too, right? Maybe... Maybe that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Maybe that's how this is. Maybe maybe that's where my doom is leading me. My doom brought me together with Gollum. It's made Gollum my guide, and now I'm supposed to follow Gollum. And he tells me there's this other way. So okay. So instead of, you know, just braving this apparently hopeless, uh, 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 you know, entrance through the in through 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 the black gate, um, instead I will follow the, the the guide that fate has brought to me. Well, that seems. Simpler, right? That's obviously the right answer. So what does the narrator do? By the way, the place where Gollum is taking them is a really bad place. Aragorn and Gandalf would have told them in a heartbeat, don't go there, don't go there. So, just in case we think that this actually is simple and straightforward, the narrator quashes that uh, with, this little, uh, with this little aside. But, at the same time, we get this juxtaposition with Gandalf. Um, and I think that that is a really fascinating... Um, a fascinating juxtaposition. Alyssa, that's a great point. Alyssa points out that there's an irony here, right? Um, Gandalf is delayed by treason, as it says. Uh, Alyssa points out Frodo is going to be uh, sped by treason, right? He's going to be moved along by treason. Um, he's, in fact, going to be shown the route, uh, and his, his, uh, his doom will ultimately be fulfilled by treason. Um, so there is a kind of irony there. Um, there's also, I think, on a simpler level, a really heavy hint, right? I mean, again, remember, the questions, okay, am I supposed to go there? Would going to this other place be, be a good idea? Answer, no, it's not a good idea. Is Gollum going to betray me? Yes, treason, Gollum is going to betray you, right? I mean, both of those things, the narrator is like holding up signs, treason, you know, pointing down towards Gollum. Bad idea, pointing over towards Kirith Ungol. Um... So we get those things also, but at the same time, the end of Gandalf's uh, conversation with Saruman also resonates with this scene in other ways too. I think. Um, remember, as I mentioned before, you know, in sort of looking at the overall shape of the two towers and the number of times we get these important moments with major characters doing these, um, uh, doing these. Uh, 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 you know, major decisions and, 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 and you know, are, are looking at the way in which they make them. Saruman, I pointed out, was one of those, right? Saruman is the one who makes the major decision um, at the end of book three um, not to come down and help them, not to turn away even after his uh, rebellion has failed and been proven hopeless. Um, and here's you know, so we've got, you know, to some extent, a parallel between Frodo and Gandalf and Saruman and Gollum. Um, but, um, but there's also, in a sense, there's, a, there's also a parallel between Frodo and Saruman. The two of them are the ones who are on the decision point. And as Frodo is teetering on the edge of his decision, Saruman has just made his. 
uh, and Wormtongue has just thrown the Palantir. Um, yeah. You know, Kay asks, would Aragorn and Gandalf have counseled him to go by the gate? He doesn't know what they would have counseled, and Gandalf and Aragorn themselves don't seem to have any idea. Um, that's one of the interesting things about all this, and it's one of the things, you know, I don't know, does that amount to an argument against the gate or for it? Um, you know, as Faramir says, there are no open ways into the Black Land. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's not like, uh, you know, if you're really clever, you'll find the uh, the easy route. And you're not gonna you're not gonna find the easy route. There is no easy route. Um but uh anyway. Um Sharon, good question, and we'll we'll end with this on this passage. Um uh Sharon asks, What do I think is the purpose of the choice of Tolkien's that Gandalf sought for them in hope and pity? Uh um pity being such an important concept. Yeah, good. I don't want to uh, uh overlook that entirely. Um, and both of them. Hope and pity. Pity for them. I mean, he has pity for their suffering. He knows. Um, and I think this also speaks to exactly, Kay, that dilemma that you were pointing to. It's not like they have any good options, right? You know, with Frodo, it's not like, okay, just don't screw this up, Frodo, right? You know, you've got the right choices and you've got the wrong choices. He's sitting here confronted by what seem on the surface like two obviously bad choices. Do I, A attempt to go in through this obviously impregnable gate uh, on my own with no resources? Or B, do I follow this manifestly treacherous creature uh, to some other place, which, oh, by the way, is right by Minas Morgul, which sounds like a really bad idea, and as Sam points out, is going to put us in as bad a fix as now or a worse one, right? So, you know, this is a lose-lose scenario, seems to be a lose-lose scenario. Um, From... uh, from from Frodo's point of view. Sharon, that, I think, is why Gandalf, uh, his mind reaches out to them in pity, because he knows Frodo is in that kind of a situation, or he's going to be confronting that kind of situation, but also hope. It's not just pity. Um, his mind sought for them in hope and pity. Um, that, I think, is, is important. Um, anyway... Um, let me move on here. One final thing before we get into our Faramir section. And that is, I, I want to take a second to clarify something, or, or just to bring up something which, I don't know if it has ever tripped up any of you, but this is something that bothered me for, like, a couple years, every time I read this um, years ago. Um, and uh, it's a passage from Faramir... When Faramir is talking about Isildur's bane, it's Faramir's guess as to what Isildur's bane is. Um, and like I said, it may be that none of you have ever had, you know, sort of asked this question or been confused by this, and maybe it's just me, but just in case, I wanted to talk about it. Now Faramir's voice sank to a whisper, but this much I learned, or guessed, and I have kept it ever secret in my heart since, that Isildur took somewhat from the hand of the unnamed, ere he went away from Gondor, never to be seen among mortal men again. Here, I thought, was the answer to Mithrandir's questioning. But it seemed then a matter that concerned only the seekers after ancient learning. Nor, when the riddling words of our dream were debated among us, did I think of Isildur's bane as being the same thing. For Isildur was ambushed and slain by orc arrows, according to the only legend that we knew, and Mithrandir never told me more. 
And now here's the thing that always tripped me up about this passage. I was uh, always confused by the combination of this passage and the revelation, you know, when Sam slips and says he wanted the enemy's ring. And Faramir's like, so that is the answer to all the, to, to you know, to, to all the riddles. And I would read this passage and I'm like, wait, didn't he figure it out? You know, that Isildur took somewhat from the hand of the unnamed, like, what is he going to take from his hand, right? I mean, you know, I would read this and say, he's making a, re- a veiled reference to the ring, right? He doesn't want to speak it openly, but he's he's just being, you know, but he took somewhat from the hand of the unnamed, like, uh, a ring, you know, like, that must have, right? I mean, what else could it be? Um... And so then, you know, when Sam, when he says it, and he's like, ah, that, that, what? The enemy's ring? I'm like, why is he acting surprised? Didn't he already know that? I don't know if any of you ever had this particular question when reading this passage, but as I said, it bothered me for years. Um, the, I think that the key to this um, is uh, that... <laughs> Ed says it could be a glove. He could have taken his glove. It is possible. Um... Yeah, Diego, exactly. That's exactly the way that hand is metaphor... That he's using the word hand metaphorically. It doesn't mean literally took something off of his hand, uh, concerning which, uh, presumably, certainly, there would be a limited number of options, right? But took something from the hand of the unnamed that he's using that phrase from the hand generically here. Um, that he has gathered, Faramir has gathered, that... Some some powerful thing of Sauron's, of which presumably he has more than one. The Ring of Power is pro- presumably not uh, Sauron's only, you know, uh, artifact. He was an artificer, we know. Um, so, and you know, even especially in the context of, you know, you think about the legends of the Last Alliance, you know, and the Sword of Elendil and the Spear of Gilgalad. You know, there were some powerful artifacts in, at play there in that last battle. Um, you know, many of the artifacts of uh, Elendil and Isildur and everything are, are, are very significant. Um, uh, I certainly have been gi- granted significance over... I mean, you've got the, the, you know, the Elendil mirror that he wears on his brow and all these things. So the idea that Sauron would have more than one toy is quite plausible. Um, and also the other thing to keep in mind, and this is always so hard for people to remember, because the books are the Lord of the Rings, the discussion is on the rings and the Ring of Power from the beginning, so it's sort of, like, it's right in the forefront of everybody's, of our minds as we read it. We've got to remember, the, the War of the Last Alliance was 3,000 years ago. It was as far removed uh, from the current time of the story of the Lord of the Rings as ancient Egypt is, re- is or like Mesopotamia is removed from our modern day. Uh, it was a long, long time ago, and nobody's been talking about the Rings of Power. The Rings of Power have been off the radar screen for thousands of years. Very few people even remember about the Rings of Power. This is why Elrond, in the Council of Elrond, has to go first and tell the whole backstory, because most people don't know it or don't know it clearly. And and tell them, by the way, there were rings of power, and Sauron made one, and here's what happened. Because most people don't even know that. It's not even obvious to me that everybody involved in the Battle of the Last Alliance itself would have known about the Ring of Power. Because that was kind of a that was kind of an inside thing. Um did 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 all the Numenorians who went into battle know that Sauron had a ring of power? 
that's not obvious to me that they would have known that. It wasn't public knowledge. So the idea that Faramir would have, A, guessed that there was some artifact of power that Isildur took, um, that belonged to Sauron after his death, took from the body of Sauron, but yet also that um, that Faramir would, knowing that, never have thought of the Ring of Rings, uh, as he later says, actually does make a good deal more sense um, uh, than uh, I think it looks at first. And we can see that's in fact exactly where he goes in the rest of this passage. What in truth this thing is, I cannot yet guess, but some heirloom of power and peril it must be. A fell weapon, perchance, devised by the Dark Lord. Um, and see, my, my, my problem when I was reading this passage is that I took from the hand, literally, and a fell weapon, not uh, figuratively, um, you know, like, the ring is a weapon, uh, you know, to be used in our hands, like Boromir might talk about it, when I think Faramir is doing exactly the opposite. He's using from the hand, figuratively, and he's using a fell weapon, literally. Um, you know, like the Morgul knife, right? We get lots of examples of fell weapons, um, you know, that, so maybe what he's, what Faramir seems to be guessing, maybe when he overcame Sauron, Sauron had some weapon, a sword, a mace, a dagger, or something, which was really powerful, and he's like, I shall keep this, you know, and I will use this for good. Um, you know, maybe that's, uh, maybe, maybe that's, you know, that was Faramir's theory, and it's not, it's a totally plausible theory. Um, uh, anyway, like I said, this, you know, you guys are probably all laughing at me, and, uh, never thought about that, and think that I'm quite silly for having, uh, having had that particular uncertainty myself. But just in case anyone else was in that position, I just wanted to mention that. Um, okay. Um, the window on the west. Uh, I've said it before, the window on the west um, is my favorite chapter title uh, in the whole Lord of the Rings. Um, the way that that chapter title works on several different levels is really, really cool. Um, I think it's the most brilliant chapter title chapter title in the whole book. Um, and here is the actual description of it. They stood on a wet floor of polished stone, the doorstep, as it were, of a rough-hewn gate of rock opening dark behind them. But in front, a, veil, a thin veil of water was hung, so near that Frodo could have put an outstretched arm into it. It faced westward. The level shafts of the setting sun beat behind it, and the red light was broken into many flickering beams of ever-changing color. It was as if they stood at the window of some elven tower, curtained with threaded jewels of silver and gold and ruby, sapphire and amethyst, all kindled with an unconsuming fire. Um, this is a beautiful description, um, but I wanted to point this out for a couple reasons. One is, there is a... There is a, a persistent use of metaphor in this section, I think, um, that is that really becomes a significant pattern in these <clears throat> chapters that are under discussion for day for today. And here's what I mean by that: it's not that when I say that he's using metaphors here, I don't mean that he's like there's some kind of like uh, you know other ulterior meaning that he's pointing to you know, some kind of contemporary meaning or something like that. Um, but rather, this passage of the two towers 
is our first prolonged encounter with the outs, you know, sort of touching on the outskirts of Numenor. Remember how I was talking earlier <clears throat> about the poem that uh, um, Aragorn recites and sort of the narrative positioning of that poem, the way that when they arrive um, in Meduseld, they are really kind of crossing the threshold. Um, the story is kind of crossing that threshold and into the and entering into the world of men. <clears throat> we get glimpses of Numenor. We get the Argonoth, <clears throat> right? We get Amon Hen. We've had encounters with Numenor. Aragorn has seen Gondor from a distance and recited a poem to it, right? But <clears throat> we haven't really spent any time there. And <clears throat> right afterwards, he turns, Frodo turns to the side and is in, you know, the Emin Wheel and the Dead Marshes and the Black Gate, um, <clears throat> back away, you know, into Sauron's country. But when they enter Athelion, we've now crossed another threshold. Now they're really entering into the realm that was Gondor's, the realm that was one of the Numenorean realms in exile. And <clears throat> I think that that's a really important moment in this story. And in that moment, in that first, um, that first encounter that we get—not first encounter—that was the Argonoth, but the uh, this uh, this first experience, this first prolonged experience that we have within the confines of the Numenorean realms, Tolkien seems to persistently um, use some sort of metaphorical moments to draw our attention to this, to invite us to recognize the significance of the Numenorean realms and exile, of what they are coming in contact with, and how it's different from the Rohirrim. You know, we looked at, you know, who shall gather the smoke from the dead wood burning, um, you know, and I was talking about, you know, the sort of the potential applicability of that, not only to, you know, the fading and mortality of the human realms, but even also to their glory, um, in looking at the Helm's Deep sequence, as we did before. Numenor is different. It works differently. Um, it has a different significance, and Tolkien invests it with a different significance. Um, and how that happens is by these encounters, this... Um, not just the encounter with Faramir, which is, of course, the center of it, but the way that he sort of surrounds the encounter with Faramir, um, with these other things that kind of give us hints as to what we're looking at and the kind of encounter that we're having. Um, this is one of the two that I'd like to draw our attention to. The window on the west, which is, you know, so this is the window of the sunset, Hanathanun. Um, it's where we get the title of the chapter from, so it, certainly we should you know, be paying attention to it. Um, it faced westward. Look at the way in which this description of the beautiful sunset shining through the waterfall, um, the, the kinds of things he's inviting us to associate with this. First of all, it's facing westward. And in case we have missed the significance of facing westward, we're reminded of it in the, uh, the pre-dinner ritual uh, that Faramir observes right before dinner that they face west uh, towards Numenor that was, elven home that is, and that which is beyond and shall ever be. We are reminded of the significance of the west uh, in the tradition of Middle-earth, that tradition of which is not remembered, not observed by everybody. Frodo feels rustic and untutored 
because hobbits are rustic and untutored about these things, not Numenorians, right? The Numenorians, this is this is what Numenor always was. The Numenorians are mortals. They're connected to the mortal world, but they are also elevated beyond the mortal world. Numenor itself was an island in the middle, right? Halfway, almost halfway, to Valinor, but still on the mortal side. It was less than halfway, just less than halfway to Valinor. But it was in this in-between place, in between the mortal lands and the undying lands. Um, Numenor was always a bridge between those two things, and we can still see it functioning in that way. It's when he's encountering these, you know, uh, later Numenorean soldiers that he is introduced, that he's reminded of of the West and in, invited to look to the West uh, in that way. And so anyway, so we've got the... So naturally, the window from their hideout looks westward, like the rest of their society. At least the good parts of it are looking westward. But what is shining on the westward-facing window? The setting sun. It's going down, right? Numenor has passed, is almost passed, right? Um, We are at the sunset of the Numenorean realm. There's, of course, Aragorn is going to become king, and there will be a sort of a second flowering, but that doesn't change the fact that it's still sunset, a glorious sunset, right? But Aragorn's whole reign and his and his line after him are still the glorious sunset of the realm of Numenor in Middle-earth. Um, so, anyway, so that, that so that's another way in which we can sort of see the metaphorical significance. But then notice the other thing, the, the, the beauty of it. It was as if they stood at the window of some elven tower. Maybe like, for instance, the elven tower that you could see from Numenor, right? I, I'm beating a dead horse here. But again, um, this actually reminds me of the description of meeting Goldberry, if you recall that in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, you know, like knocking at the door of a cottage and being met by a you know a fair young elf queen clad in living flowers. Um, they stood at the window of some elven tower, curtained with threaded jewels of silver and gold and ruby, sapphire and amethyst, all kindled with an unconsuming fire. Um, you have both the splendor of elven realms, but also their craftsmanship and their magic, the the idea of these gems kindled with an unconsuming fire, which for which, of course, there is precedent um, uh, in the Silmarils, of course. But again, that element of uh, elven power, of elven magic, is also associated here with with the Numenorians. There's, there's, a, there's a likeness there. There is a connection there, which is not there. Um, which is not there in uh, in Rohan, for instance. Even with you know Helm and Helm's Deep and you know Helm um, uh, Helm for Theoden King, you know that there's still it's n- it's not the same. It doesn't have the same uh, um, it doesn't have the same impact. Um, yeah, let's see. Um, Yeah, Tom makes a good point. Um, Ithilien is a, is the the first the first forest or woods that anyone enters that has nothing to do with elves or mythic creatures. I guess Tom, if you don't count Oliphants, right? Uh, he doesn't live there. Uh, it's connected with men, and as high and beautiful as it is, it isn't fairy. 
mortal, as he just said, and as death uh, encountered here underlies, right, the bones that Sam finds. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's... It's still to misapply a phrase. It still smells like elves, though. Uh, it's not elvish. Um, and you'll notice when Legolas gets there, you know, he's like, oh, this place is nice. <laughs> right? Um, you know, he feels comfortable in Ithilien. He really admires Ithilien. Um, but you're right, Tom. I mean, I don't want to... I don't want to... I don't want to understress your point, Tom, which I think is a very good one. Um, it is significant that this is not an elvish realm. It's a mortal realm. It's a human realm. But again, it it's a it's a it's 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 not in fairy, but it's like a suburb of fairy, or at least there are these fairy and elements to it, and that's one of the things that I think is so fascinating about that elven tower, you know, elven tower window description of uh, Henethanun. There, um, it looks out to the west in the blaze of the setting sun, reminding us of Numenor, um, but it's also um, recalling elven power and elven magic. Um, Jenny makes a wonderful point. Um, uh, the sunset is what makes the waterfall colorful, though. It wouldn't have been so pretty at noon. Um, great point, Jenny. Um, yeah, it is... It's the splendor of Numenor even in its decline. Um, and that, I think, is what is so significant about Faramir as a character. Um, Gondor is in decline, he talks about Gondor in decline. Um, we see Gondor in decline. Denethor, um, Boromir has already given us a hint at Gondor in decline, as Faramir openly um, sort of acknowledges, essentially. Um, Denethor will show it us again, even more. In Faramir, we see, you know, to me, you know, I say that Window on the West, Faramir is to me in himself, the window on the west. He is a glimpse of Numenor and what Numenor was like and what Numenorians were like. Um, he is the uh, the you know the the the, sh- the level shafts of the setting sun beating upon that window. Um, he is. It is sort of the, the the glory of Faramir is like that glory of the setting sun. But Jenny, you make a wonderful point. Um, at noon, the waterfall wouldn't be as pretty, right? Um, it is seeing not just the fading, it's not dusk, it's sunset. Um, and the sunset is glorious, and the sunset is beautiful, even in its decline. Um, it is beautiful. It is powerful. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Here's the other passage that I wanted to point to, which I think also works in a metaphorical way. Um, And, uh, yeah, yeah, about the road. The road had been made in a long-lost time, and for perhaps thirty miles below the Moranon it had been newly repaired. But as it went south, the wild encroached upon it. The handiwork of men of old could still be seen in its straight, sure flight and level course. Now and again it cut its way through hillside slopes, or leaped over a stream upon a widely, wide, shapely arch of enduring masonry. But at last all signs of stonework faded, save for a broken pillar here and there, peering out of bushes at the side, or old paving stones still lurking amid weeds and moss. Heather and trees and bracken scrambled down and overhung the banks, or sprawled out over the surface. It dwindled at last to a country cart road little used, but it did not wind. 
it held on its own sure course and guided them by the swiftest way. The road here, I think, also serves metaphorically. Um, it's not that the description of the road as they travel southward is itself like a linear metaphor for the history of Gondor. I wouldn't go so far that, like, as we see the road fall into disrepair, we are seeing, you know, sort of the uh, decay of Gondor and the decline of Gondor. Um, I don't think so, mostly because where the, where it starts is not anything like the history of Numenor, um, because it's it's uh, it's me it's, it's for thirty miles below the Moran and it had been newly repaired. The implication, of course, is that it's been newly repaired by Sauron and his minions, um, and that's not where Numenor starts. Sauron had a big part in Numenor, but it, that's not where it begins exactly. Um, so I don't think that that, or at least I think that it's a clumsy, that would, that, that's, that's, it can only be clumsily applied, I think, to the history of Gondor in any kind of uh, straightforward fashion. Um, but the way in which it is, you know, taking this passage and you sort of put this passage next to Faramir's uh, narration, you know, his story of the decline of Gondor, um, and how they, they fell out of wisdom, how they've become middlemen, but with memory of, of other things. Um, you know, that the idea of this great highway of Gondor dwindling at last to a country cart road little used um, is, to me, that right there is, I think, a really powerful um, metaphor. Uh, it's still a road. It's not very much used, um, and it has become small, and it has become narrow, um, and people don't even go there much anymore. But it's still true. It doesn't wind. It held on its own sure course and guided them by the swiftest way. It is still a road laid by the men of Numenor. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, oh, by the way, and correction, of course, thank you, Alyssa, for, uh, uh, as so often, uh, uh, catching my slips. Um, Alyssa is uh, uh, one of our students at Mythgard and uh, uh, is, is frequently my, uh, uh, my fact-checker. Um, of course, you're right, Alyssa, I was misremembering that passage about the positioning of Numenor. It's not on the Middle-earth side, it's on the Valinor side. It's not 40% of the way to Valinor, it's 60% of the way to Valinor. Um, so yes, thank you for, for catching that slip on my part. Um, it's still, again, the significance of its positioning between the mortal realms and the undying lands is still really crucial. Um, but it's a testimony to the significance uh, you know, uh, of the sort of the, the gift that was given in the land of gift um, to the Numenorians that they're put just over the halfway mark. Thanks for catching that. Um, yeah, Kay, that's a good way of thinking about it. Kay says it works as a metaphor for legends from the old days, thinking back to the discussions with Theoden, I think. They're a remnant in a memory, but they contain the truth. It is unwise to scoff at myth and legend. Um, yeah, it may be neglected, it may be, it may be uh, used um, by few people, and only, apparently, um, you know, rustics. Uh, but... Um, but it doesn't wind. It's still its course is still sure, and it will still guide you by the swiftest way. Yeah, I think that there are a couple ways in which we can see this uh, sort of functioning metaphorically. 
Um, the reason I think that Tolkien is doing this, as I said, I think that he wants to introduce Gondor, because again, this is our first real encounter with Gondor, modern Gondor, not just the relics. Um, and he wants us to see both sides of that, um, to appreciate the decay of Gondor, you know, not to be thinking this is, you know, the mighty land of the Numenorians, but we can't lose sight of it. Um, it, it is very distinct from the Rohirrim. The difference in the culture between Rohan and Gondor is, I think, not only a really important element in the story, um, but really fascinating the way that Tolkien conveys that, um, and the different things that he has us associate with those two different cultures, who are, you know, near neighbors and allies, and, um, you know, it would be easy enough for us to kind of lump them together. Okay, we've got two neighboring allied human kingdoms uh, who are both, you know, good guys working together, um, but he accomplishes two very different things with those two different groups. Um, and I think it's... and So I, I think that we can see in this section some of the ways in which he's pushing us to think about Gondor and the Numenorians. Um, by the way, one small side note there. Um, it's one of the... In the films, I just want to kind of give a shout-out to something I think visually they did really, really well in the films. Um, thinking about this kind of metaphorical thing, they did one in the film, which I think also is really cool. Um, you remember when, at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring film, when they're in the general Amon-Hen region, so they're in that, you know, places where, where the, the, the old kingdom of Gondor used to be, um, and Frodo is out collecting wood right when Boromir finds him and tries to take the ring from him, and he walks past that, like, half-submerged statue head, right? So you see this old colossal statue's head, now fallen down and half buried in the ground, um, as it's obviously been lying there for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, you know that's uh, that. T it's in some ways it's it's kind of hokey, but but I really like it actually. I think that that one image of Frodo gathering dead wood um, in his arms, or uh, Boromir, sorry, is the one gathering firewood, not Frodo. I'm making slips all over the place tonight. Boromir is gathering firewood. So Boromir with his arm f arms full of dead wood. Uh, coming upon, you know, this obviously Numenorean statue, because it looks, you know, it's obviously cut in the same style as the Argonoth was. Um, but it's old, you know, it's it's broken and it's fallen and it's neglected, but it's not forgotten. You can still see it, and it's it's still there, and it's only half-submerged, and one eye is still looking out at them. Um, but, um, anyway, so that's, that's uh, I, I, a moment from the film which I think has a similar... Uh, kind of impact um, to these to these passages. Um, good. Um, well, let's look at Faramir. In the films, of course, we can't have Faramir be sufficiently noble, right? No, we can't. Um, this is um, this passage is exactly the problem, right? This is what uh, Peter Jackson and Philip Boyens had no patience with. Uh, when making the film character of Faramir. And uh, this is the thing that so many Tolkien fans have had such a hard time forgiving them for. But fear no more. I would not take this thing if it lay by the highway, not where Minas Tirith falling in ruin and I alone could save her so, using the weapon of the Dark Lord for her good and my glory. No, I do not wish for such triumphs, Frodo, son of Drogo. And this follows right from that passage that I was quoting before about thinking that Isildur's bane might be this fell weapon of some kind that he took from Sauron. 
I wouldn't want it, um, says Faramir. Um, I would not take this thing if it lay by the highway. One brief thing I would point out about that, he later quotes himself here and says, I said not if it lay by the highway would I take it. Um, and he says, you know, basically, I, 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 would, I would take that, I would have taken that as, a, as an oath and have considered myself bound by it. Even if I really did want to take the ring, Faramir passes the test. Right, Faramir passes the test better than Galadriel does. Obviously, better than Boromir did. Um, uh, he he passes the test of the ring of the lure of the ring with flying colors. But I think it's an important thing. He does like an anti-rationalization. That statement: "I would not take this thing if it lay by the highway." That's not a vow. That's not an oath. It's a statement of his intention. If I found it lying by the highway, I wouldn't take it. If you're trying to rationalize your way around that one, I mean, you you could drive a truck through the holes in that statement, taken as a vow, right? Uh, I mean, that would be the easiest vow ever to get out of. But he goes the other way with it, right? Again, it's like anti-rationalization. That thing that I said about kind of my vague general intentions of never wanting to have it, no, I would retroactively make that into a vow never to take it under any circumstances. It's like the mirror reverse of the kind of rationalization um, that we so often um, that we so often he, uh, see people doing about the ring. Diego is uh, uh, thinking of oaths again. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's it does come in here again, but again, but see, Diego, the interesting thing is again, it's, again, it's like the opposite. Smeagol is compelled by Frodo to make an oath, right? It's the only way that he'll take him with him. And that oath is binding upon him, and it's the power of the ring, the precious will hold him to the promise, it's the power of the ring by which he has sworn that binds him to his oath. Faramir binds himself to what sounds to me, you know, maybe I'm an amateur on oath-taking, but that sounds to me like a completely non-binding statement on Faramir's part. But he is bound not by anything external, but by purely internal things. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sharon is abjuring me in all caps, not to mention the film Faramir. Um, I have to, Sharon. Just have to go there. I have to. And one of the reasons... Uh, take this comfort uh, in the travesty of the film Faramir. Um, he makes the book Faramir look even awesomer than he already did. Um, but, um, anyway, let me carry on here. Neither did the council, said Frodo, nor do I. I would have done, I would have nothing to do with such matters. For myself, said Faramir, I would see the white tree in flower again in the courts of the kings, and the silver crown return, and Minas Tirith in peace. Minas Anor again, as of old, full of light, high and fair, beautiful as a queen among other queens, not as a mistress of many slaves, nay, not even as a kind mistress of willing slaves. War must be, while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend, the city of the men of Numenor, and I would have her loved for her memory, her ancientry, her beauty, and her present wisdom, not feared, save as men may fear the dignity of a man old and wise. 
this is you know, I forgot the ring defying monologue again playing on my own silly turn of phrase that I've used many times before of the the ring induced monologue uh, that uh, that people will so often do um, when they're experiencing the temptation of the ring this is the absolute opposite of all of the ring-induced monologues. The ring induces people to rationalize seizing power. It tempts people <clears throat> to, uh, to subordinate the means to the ends and to take power for themselves and dominate others for their own good, dominate others for the, for the you know, in the interest of the greater good or whatever... Um, Faramir begins, you know, accompanies his retroactive oath here in that first paragraph with a paragraph which explains where his own heart lies and it lies in the abs- in the absolute opposite direction. Notice, it's easy to miss. In that first sentence, I would see the white tree in flower again in the courts of kings and the silver crown return in Minas Tirith in peace. Um, it's easy to see that as nostalgia, Right, I would see the glory of Gondor restored, and to miss the humility in that statement. I, I am the son now um, heir, sadly, of the ruling steward. I would see the king's return. Boromir, as a kid, is like Dad. Come on, why aren't you king already? This is lame, right? Faramir longs for the return of the king. Um, wants to see that restored, even though it means <clears throat> that he would be put out of power. Um, it is not only uh, a, a statement full of nostalgia for the glory of Gondor, but it is a very humble statement. Exactly, again, in the opposite direction. Take that paragraph and put it next to Boromir's rationalization paragraph, where he, uh, you know, it would be mad not to use it, to use the ring against the enemy. Um, <clears throat> and his thought about preserving his uh, city and becoming a king, benevolent and wise. Um, Put those two things next to each other. And um, you can see Faramir is facing 180 degrees in the opposite direction of Boromir. And it's his humility that is really striking. Um, And of course, you know, I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I, I get, that's himself that he's talking about here. Um, he is, it's, it's humility. He is the greatest captain. Boromir was a greater captain. Um, but after Boromir, he is the greatest captain of war that Gondor has. Um, he, he is the one now winning more glory as a warrior than anyone else. Um, he just won a battle, like, an hour ago, before he said this, right? Um, so, yeah, how he describes... Minas Tirith, again, exactly, um, you know, very different from that, you know, the king benevolent and wise, and the way that he characterizes both himself and the city that uh, that Boromir is thinking of. Um, think about how quick Boromir was to jump in, right? He jumps in in the Council of Elrond. Allow me to say a word about Gondor, right? For verily from that, you know, think not that in Gondor the blood of Numenor is wholly spent, nor all of its pride and dignity forgotten, he says. He's quick to defend it. No, no, no. Gondor is still awesome, right? It's still... And, uh, uh, and, and I think also of that stinging slap that, Bor- that uh, Aragorn gives to him 
Lore wanes in Gondor, Boromir, if in the city that where men were once considered wise, they now speak evil of Lothlorien. Um, uh, but again, he's clearly using that language because he knows that it will sting Boromir. Um, you know, because he's he is emphatically making the point to Boromir um, that uh, that he is wrong, and it is it does not befit somebody of Gondor to speak that way of Lothlorien. Um, but again, it's because of Boromir's own pride, his own personal pride, and his pride for his city. The relationship that Faramir has is completely different. <clears throat> this is not the moment where Faramir turns away from the ring. This is where Faramir shows us why he is inoculated against the temptation of the ring. Um, this is why... I was about to say why he's immune. It's not exactly immunity, of course. Um, but this is the strength that Faramir has, the particular kind of strength that Faramir has that makes him well-nigh impervious to the temptation of the ring. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, one more. This is, of course, the actual moment uh, of his rejection of the ring. Um, Sam has just said, "Is uh, you know, now's a chance for you to to uh, to show your quality." So it seems," said Faramir slowly and very softly, with a strange smile. So that is the answer to all the riddles. The one ring that was thought to have perished from the world. And Boromir tried to take it by force, and you escaped, and ran all the way to me. And here in the wild I have you, two halflings and a host of men at my call, and the ring of rings, a pretty stroke of fortune, a chance for Faramir, captain of Gondor, to show his quality. Ha! He stood up, very tall and stern, his gray eyes glinting. Frodo and Sam sprang from their stools and set themselves side by side with their backs to the wall, fumbling for their sword hilts. There was a silence. All the men in the cave stopped talking and looked towards them in wonder. But Faramir sat down again in his chair and began to laugh quietly, and then suddenly became grave again. Alas for Boromir. It was too sore a trial, he said. Now, tell me, what just happened here? Can you gloss this passage for me? Let me ask a few questions. Question number one. Is Faramir tempted? Are we seeing him overcome temptation? He stood up very tall and stern, his gray eyes glinting. Does Faramir have a notion at that moment? Is he like, I think I'm gonna... No, no, I'm good. Is that what happened there? Was he tempted? And to what extent is he tempted? That's my first question. My second question. Why does he laugh? What's he laughing about? Why he becomes grave again seems clear enough by what he says. Alas, for Boromir, it was too sore a trial. Right? Um, what overcoming this temptation, if whatever temptation he experiences, what this revelation makes him realize is now he understands fully what happened with Boromir. Um, but why does he laugh? And what's, why does he stand up? What's going on here? Um, Sharon is pointing out Faramir's uh, gray eyes. Um, one 
one small gloss I'd give on that phrase, Sharon. That's a very medieval phrase. Um, the eye color that modern people call blue was called gray in the Middle Ages. Um, uh, almost always. They, ne- they didn't... Blue is not an eye color in the Middle Ages. Um, it's, it's gray and brown. Um, so just... I mean, that's, that's a very common description. A, someone whom we would call a blue-eyed blonde um, was always a gray-eyed blonde. Fair-haired beauties in medieval love poems always have gray eyes. Um, uh, I think of uh, a comical line from Chaucer where he's describing a gray-eyed beauty and says that her eyes were as gray, as gray as a goose. <laughs> Anyway, um, uh, so yeah, so his eyes are gray, which we would call blue. Um, okay. So what's happening? Is he tempted? Diego thinks maybe, like Galadriel, but in a smaller scale. Um, maybe, maybe. Um, Alyssa points out, as he explains afterwards, when Sam says, you know, uh, you took the chance and showed your quality, right? The very highest. Um, Faramir, of course, he's very humble, right? So he doesn't say, yeah, I was pretty awesome back there, wasn't I? I mean, I just totally... I, I just totally uh, re- rejected the ring like it was nothing back there, right? Of course, Faramir doesn't say that, but what he says is, I had no, no lure or desire to do other than I have done. Um, he says... I wasn't tempted. It's not... The ring, not tempting. I don't want the ring. Um, Now, of course, we could choose to doubt him, right? Maybe uh, that might be easier said now than it was a few minutes before. Um, Carolyn, excellent. We do have... um, We do have another candidate here, don't we? If Faramir, in fact, has no lure or desire, if he feels no temptation to take the ring, that puts him in pretty rare company. Um, If Boromir has conquered because he overcame that temptation and turned away from it, um, that puts him in relatively elite company, right? Bilbo is the only one who has ever actually left the ring behind and abandoned it uh, uh, knowingly and on purpose and lived afterwards. Um, but as Carolyn points out, the only other person that we know of who was not tempted at all by the ring is Tom Bombadil. Gandalf is tempted. Right? Um, Gandalf explains you know, it talks about things like the path that the ring has to his mind, like, you know, he dares not take it. Um, you know, he know he, he Gandalf is tempted. Um, he knows that he might try to use it to see if he could turn it to good and that it would ensnare him. Um, Goadriel is tempted. Again, I think that that moment, her, as I said before, I think her speech, um, you know, her in place of the Dark Lord, you would have a queen speech, is 
a little bit less dramatic than people will often make it. That is not, I think, her in the process of rationalization. It's her explanation, her demonstration, rather, uh, to Frodo of why she is saying no, why she has resisted that temptation. But, um, uh, but anyway, um, Jenny asks a good question. If he's not tempted, I don't see how he would suddenly understand about Boromir. Well, Jenny, I think in one way we can understand that simply as he knows his brother, right? And he can sit there and say, I don't want the ring. Oh, dang, but Boromir would, right? I mean, he loves his brother, but he knows him, as he says. Um, so I think that we could see that. Um, Kay also does point out, of course, Tom Bombadil does laugh about the ring also. Um, that's another thing that Faramir would seem to have in common with him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, and uh, Marie says he was tempted, but he was wise enough to know that there were some perils a man must flee. Um, yes, yes, though... Um, Though we don't see him running away, exactly. I'm not sure that we see him fleeing here. Emily points out that if he is a pupil of Gandalf, he seems to be uh, exceeding his teacher here. And certainly, um, the fact of Gandalf being his teacher... I mean, Gandalf's own humility is a really important and very prominent feature. Um, So we do see Gandalf as being Faramir's teacher in some ways. If we would point to ways in which Gandalf has influenced him, I think that we can see some of these things that uh, uh, that he's been saying that we were looking at in the previous passages seem to be Gandalf-influenced. But why does he laugh? Why does he laugh? And if he's not tempted, why does he stand up very tall and stern with his gray eyes glinting? Why does he say, Ha! at the end of his speech. Why does he say, And here in the wild I have you, two halflings and a host of men at my call, and the ring of rings? He seems to be leading them to think. If he's not actually contemplating taking the ring from them, he certainly seems to invite them to think that. What do you think? Sharon says, Faramir laughs because he knows the truth about himself is so different from what Frodo expects. So he's just messing with him? He's just, like, screwing with him? Right? I'm gonna make you think I'm about to take the ring. Oh, not taking the ring. Made you look. Right? And then he's gonna laugh at their expense? Suckers. You totally thought I was going for the ring just there. I, I just played you big time, you suckers. Right? Is that... That's... But Far- it seems a little... What do you think? Uh, seems a little harsh. Uh, Tom says, uh, isn't Faramir laughing because he's now being confronted with the necessity of living up to his boast? Um, that he sees the irony, right? Um, I said I wouldn't take it, and now, I said I wouldn't take it, whatever it was, is Ilder's Bane, and now I find out that it's the Ring of Power. Oh, and now I'm stuck. Gosh, oh, the irony, right? Boromir tried to take it away, and now you brought it to me, and I can't take it. Hilarious. <laughs> right? To, to some extent. Um, to some extent. Um, 
Brianna says, when Faramir stands up, I get the impression that he is facing east, uh, since it feels like he's facing away from the window. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I guess I always imagined him facing the side of the cave, but perhaps. Um, Jenny, you know, that seems very plausible to me. Jenny says, it's funny, maybe, that if Faramir had gone to Rivendell instead, Frodo might have met Boromir here, and things might have been different. Um, That's very interesting, Jenny. The second half of that is not something I've thought about very much. The first half I've thought about a great deal. Not only is there a, you know, if Faramir had gone, it seems, I think, relatively clear that Faramir was supposed to go. Um, If the dream is a summons, it's Faramir who's being summoned. Remember Boromir's account. The dream was Faramir's dream. It came to Faramir many, many times once it came to Boromir too. Um, When uh, Faramir asks to go, to follow the instruction of the dream. He feels like he's being called to to Rivendell, and he wants to go. And Boromir claims the errand, because he's the eldest, and he's more hardy than Faramir. Right? I'm better... I I have better right, and I am more qualified than you, Faramir. I should go instead, because I'm awesomer than you are. And Faramir concedes, yes, you are awesomer. That's right. And Denethor gives the quest to him, to go to Rivendell. It clearly was Faramir's job to go to Rivendell, but Jenny, you're right. Um, They probably would have met Boromir in Athelion had Faramir been along with them. Um, Yeah, yeah. Sharon thinks that he's not laughing at their expense. The humor is in the unexpected. The contrast between what Frodo thinks of Faramir and what Faramir knows of himself is humorous. Um... Yeah, I mean, I do think that he he sort of, he sees the irony in the whole situation. Um, And I think he is, it seems like he is playing up to it there. Um, And Boromir tried to take it by force, and you escaped and ran all the way to me. And here in the wild I have you. Um, uh, Remember that Strider does a very similar thing in Bree. Um, remember when he pulls that stern face and says, if I were after the ring, I could have it now. And he like pulls back his cloak and shows his sword hilt, and the hobbits like again freak out, and, uh, and then he's like, but I am the real Aragorn, fortunately. Uh, um, you know, or the real Strider, fortunately. Um, he does a similar thing to what Faramir does here. Faramir does seem to on purpose lead them to believe that he's going to take it. Um, And he's playing on... He's quoting back to Sam Sam's own words, right? Oh, the irony. You think this is a chance for me to show my quality, right? Yes, I will show my quality in a new way. I shall make myself lord! That shall be my new quality. And again, playing on that word, because of course the word quality means not only how good you are, but your quality means also you know, your rank in society. Um, I just promoted... What is my quality? Promoted from steward to king. That's what my quality is. right? Um, and he begins to laugh quietly at the irony of this. That's not... 
Uh, no, guys, I'm just kidding. That's not really what's happening here, though it looks like it, right? He appreciates the irony of the situation. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Diego says, I think it was a you catastrophe that Boromir went to the council and now Faramir faced the ring temptation. Um, Diego, it does work out that way. It, In the end, it was not how it was supposed to be. It was not what was, in that sense, I think, supposed to happen. But, um, in the end, it worked out for the best. And that's what so often happens in The Lord of the Rings. That things which seem to be wrong, things which seem to be a misfortune, in fact, uh, turn out to be not only good, but uniquely, um, uniquely, uh, uh, um, uniquely beneficial. Oh, Sharon, you weren't right. I am sorry. Sharon is pointing out that there's another Sharon here. Um, yeah, I was just quoting Sharon Powell before. Um, I didn't realize that. Yes, a couple times. Sorry, Sharon Powell! <laughs> I'm, 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 uh, I'm used to, uh, to, uh, interacting with Sharon Hoff, and thanks, Sharon, for pointing, uh, for pointing that out. I did not, uh, I didn't notice that. Um, Anyway, um, Alyssa says he could be trying their resolution to see how they will react in the face of apparently greater power trying to take it. Um, uh, good, and she's remembering Boromir's words. You can say that I took it by force, for I am too strong for you. Um, Boromir kind of works himself up to actually seizing the ring by citing a hypothetical situation, right? But he is also permitting Frodo an out, right? Um, Frodo, if you want to get rid of it, why not be rid of it? He tells him, right? If you would... I could believe that you want to get rid of it. I know you're scared. Um, say I took it by force, right? And then, of course, he moves from the theoretical rationalization to the actualization of it. Um, uh, but uh, Faramir, you could say, of course, is it does not take that step, uh, that he is... Uh, uh, you know, she she says there's irony in tempting Frodo backwards to give it up, where Boromir was tempted to seize it. Um, yeah, I mean, in fact, really, Boromir was in a, was tempting him to the same thing, but not in order to test him. And you know, Boromir wasn't interested in testing Frodo, right? He was rationalizing, um, whereas arguably Frodo could be seen as testing them in this way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Emily says maybe he's in semi-shock. The ring is actually here, and that he's he's still kind of processing this. You know, in some way, Emily, I think that I can um, I can see that. And you know that like, and Boromir tried to take it by force, and you escaped and ran all the way to me, and here in the wild I have you. I think that's not just premeditation, um, like you know, like premeditated messing with them or testing them. Um, thinking of it in that way, um, uh, Emily, as, as a kind of processing, right? Like, he's like, now everything is clicking together. Now I see what's happening here. Um, now I see that there was more than chance in our meeting. Now I recognize this, but, like, oh, the irony of you coming from Boromir to me and seeing the parallel situations and knowing how much harder this would be for Boromir, knowing him as he does, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
Good. Well, I should let you go. I've been keeping you guys late here tonight again. Um, though at least I did get through all my passages. Uh, you know, Faramir's character, I certainly don't think Faramir is being malicious here, nor do I certainly think he's laughing in mockery. Um, I think he's... I think also, in a sense, the laughter is designed partly for his men, of course. The men in the cave stopped talking and looked towards them in wonder. The fact that he sets down and laughs is also a cue to the men, who, who the narrator tells us, see that the captain has had some jest or other with the, with the, you know, with the, 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 the little guests. Um, <clears throat> so he's diffusing the situation. Um, you know, if, uh, if Emily, he is sort of shocked into standing up and making this rather intense declaration and sort of working through these things and seeing all the implications. And they clearly are thinking that uh, he's about to turn on them. And he doesn't want to have to turn around and be like, it's okay, everybody. Ring of power. I resisted. Go about your business. Right? <laughs> like, he doesn't want to do that, right? So, you know, you could see his laughter as a way to diffuse the situation for the benefit of his men. But I also think it's for the benefit of Frodo and Sam. Right, that he's trying to to reassure them and to show them, no, it's it's okay. Like I'm 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 not uh, I've not gone there really, um, and uh, yeah, uh, Sharon Hoff still thinks that it's uh, his own reflection on his relationship with his brother. Um, yeah, I think in a sense, um, good, good, yeah. Yeah, no, I think all of those things make sense to me. And I do, you know, something that a bunch of you have mentioned is irony. I do think that the irony of all of this comes in on him here. Um, and there's there's so many different things that are ironic. You know, the fact that he foreswore this thing before he knew what it was, but even now that he does know what it was, he wouldn't really want it, yet it would seem like he would want it, and they are probably going to be terrified that he does want it, and Boromir certainly did, and now, you know, and they, having just escaped from Boromir, now they've come against his brother, and boy, does that must seem like bad luck, like, you know, poor little Frodo, like, I'm being, I'm being, you know, persecuted by this family, right? How many, how many brothers do I have to escape? Uh, You know, all of these, you know, there's so many different ways in which he can he sort of is hit by all of the different ironies of that situation um, so I think his uh, his laughter therefore is uh, um, you know can also be seen as a um, as a, a link to all that stuff you know as, as sort of a, an expression of all of those complicated things um, anyway, I will let you go. Uh, a uh, brief announcement, uh, though, before I do. Um, I wanted to let you guys know that, uh, as you uh, you know may have seen already, the uh, the Mythgard Institute students are throwing a a sort of a, an old-fashioned telethon. Well, it's a webathon, so it's not all that old-fashioned. Uh, on Sunday, Hobbit Day, the 22nd, um, as uh, it is our, our, our final uh, pledge drive for the Indiegogo funding campaign for the Mythgard Academy, we, we want to try to uh, to raise some more funds to have some, you know, to, to have these classes go on. We, I, you know, I would love to see uh, a full year of these classes to be able to uh, to do a lot of things together as we've been going through the two towers together. 
Um, so I would definitely encourage you. I know they're going to be... So I, I've not been planning this, so I, I don't yet know everything that's going to be happening. I've heard uh, about some of the segments that are going to be happening that should be really cool. There'll be a lot of uh, a lot of fun things to watch and to participate in. Um, there uh, will also be a bunch of sort of special opportunities and uh, extra perks and incentives for, uh, uh, for for giving. I know there have been some additional donations and uh, prizes that are going to be given away um, on on that day. So uh, that sh- it should be um, it should be a lot of uh, it should be a lot of fun. For, for, from what I've heard, I think it's going to be great fun, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, and uh, yes, uh, Trish is reminding me that I should mention one segment that I am going to be taking part in live uh, is uh, uh, Mythgard Fantasy Theater 3000. Trish and Dave and I are going to be doing some uh, uh, some uh, uh, MST3K style uh, commentary tracks on 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 uh, Tolkien films, so that that should be fun. Uh, but anyway, so I hope that you guys can uh, can tune in. Go to the Mythgard.org website. Uh, you can find the page for the uh, for the the telethon. You can find out some more information there and stay posted to announcements as we go. So just keep that in mind uh, to be checking in on our uh, on our telethon uh, on Sunday next Sunday the twenty second. So. Uh, anyway, but thanks again for joining us, everybody. Next week, both days, Monday, Thursday, normal schedule as we had in the previous two weeks and not the uh, strange, bizarre last-minute switches I had to do here with this second session. Back to Monday evening, uh, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and Thursday afternoon, 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time uh, for our final two classes in the Two Towers class. In the Two Towers class. We'll get through the end of the book uh, next week. So anyway, thanks again, everybody, for joining us, and good night. Bye.